Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others wouldn't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave yeah, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Cool. Uh, Rusty live on the pod with Dangerous Dave Piggott. How are you, mate? You well? Yeah, it's the first time I've been called Dangerous Dave. That's weird, isn't it? You think I would, that would have happened before? Is it really the first time? Yeah, I um, think so. Anyway, um, good, um, mate. Uh, good to see you. Glad we finally got this done. Um, yeah. Really, kind of excited. You got me pumped. It probably feels like it, it might have been six months ago. Talking about your work around flow and uh, and all of that. But uh, do you want to kind of? Uh, introduce yourself and tell everyone like wh- where have you been in your life so far yeah how long you got I don't know um so, so yeah I'm, I'm obviously I'm Dave Piggott I'm, I'm currently a uh, lecturer at um, Leeds Beckett University uh, I don't know if you see my top got my logo on it corporate man Abra- yeah. Andy Abraham will be pleased you're on brand yeah I've done my bit um I'll shut up about that now um, so yeah, currently my current job is to um, I lead the MSc program at Leeds Beckett in sport coaching, but I also teach on the undergrad course and um, have some doctoral supervisions and uh, ed, um, the prof doc as well, obviously Rusty. So um, so yeah, I've got a fairly broad range of responsibilities there, and I also do a little bit of research and consultancy. So um, and, and I guess. More recently as well, I used to work at the, um, I spent a couple of years working at the Football Association. Um, so working with the national teams there, um, really into sort of talent ID, talent development um, department, um, which was really good. Um, but yeah, I missed I missed higher education. So I thought I'll come back and probably uh, give, them, give them the carnage at the FA in the last uh, six to nine months. It's probably not a bad, uh, a bad decision. So, um, so yeah, um, Pretty much a long-time academic with, uh, but I've I've sort of dipped my toe in industry as well, and um, you know done a fair bit of consultancy work for various different sports around the country and and, and the world actually a little bit. So, um, and probably the only other thing to add in the context of today's conversation is um, my basketball coach. Or well, I'm having a bit of a break at the minute, but um, as we all are. <laughs> but yeah, I've been a basketball coach for um, oh god about. 25 years now near enough um so first started coaching when i was 16 at 15 16 at school you know took the school team and that kind of thing and then you know jobbed my way up in through outdoor courts and uh you know summer camps and all the rest of it through to um uh, coaching up to like professional level so I've, I've coached like at the highest level you can coach in this country and probably everywhere in between um over the years nice and i love the fact that you're started coaching at a young age and then I guess you got curious and went into the academic side of it and we'll definitely talk about that and and the other role you missed out on you are head you are the head inspector of education for homeschooling in your house I hear you're a bit like me you'll you'll dip in and dip out and you give your viewpoint and tell people where they're going wrong and then leave the room again yeah usually what I do is I sit in here and listen when I hear the voices getting raised up I'll, I'll step out, sort things out, and then come back in again. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. They're doing a great job. They're doing a fantastic job, the kids and, and, and my partner. It's, uh, yeah, really keeping it keeping it going. So, massively grateful for them by sitting here doing my bit, yeah. 
Same as me. Well done. What, what got you into coaching originally? So 15, 16, my instant instinct is Dave wasn't very good at basketball. And they said, oh, could, could you coach the team, Dave? But I'm sure it was, <clears throat> I'm sure it was more than that. Yeah. Um, in effect, I was, I was a good player. Um, I was really in, interested in engaging the sport. And I'd actually, I think I'd done my, like, my JSLA. Do you remember that? Junior Sports Leaders Award thing. I think I'd done that when I was 15 and I got a bit of a, like, just one of those things, you know, I think when you first coach or you first, you know, first time you teach somebody else something and they, and they, you know, improve in a short space of time, like the, you manage to teach them a technique or show them something and they can do it straight away and you get that immediate buzz, don't you? That, oh, this is, that was, that was fantastic. I love that. You know, so I remember that feeling when I, when I was first ever put in that situation at 15 and I thought, yeah, this is, I can have a go at this. Um, and then also I got injured when I was um, 17. Stupidly, I was trying to dunk a, well, I was dunking a basketball and uh, trying to impress a group of kids when I was coaching. So I was dunking and I came down and pretty much shattered my knee <laughs> as I landed. So um, yeah, I had ligaments and tendon damage, which put me out for about a year. So all I could do during that time was coach. Um, so, you know, I did my level two and um, got qualified and then, yeah, I mean, basketball is one of them sports where there's not a lot of there aren't a lot of qualified coaches knocking about. So if you've got a qualification and you're and you're engaged and interested, there's lots of opportunities, lots of work to do. You know, so um, yeah, I took a lot of those opportunities when I was at uni, and um, yeah, it's probably by the time I graduated, I was quite, relatively speaking, for my age, I was probably one of the most experienced young coaches in the country. I would have thought, you know, not far off it. Yeah, and you were, we were talking earlier about, and I think it's like, I guess um, it's tough at the moment for students because they're kind of online and they they can't coach um, and they're thinking a lot about coaching without doing it. But actually, you know, the reality of, of getting on the pitch coaching at the same time as having, you know, people supporting them and challenging them from an academic Point of view. So, so what did that look like for you? Did you just find your way at the start, or did you have people around you? I'm curious as to what what led you, and then did you go right? I'm 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 okay at this, and I'm going to go and study this. Yeah, I probably had um, had some good teachers at college who were really supportive, actually. And um, the guy on name dropping was a guy called Rob Weaver. He was a, a scouse a scouse fella who. Um, did my, did my level two and he gave me my first job as well. And he was, he was just one of these guys who probably think back now. He's like, I was so young and I knew so little, but he was willing to give me a shot and let me have a go at things. And he took me on these, um, well, so I mentioned I did a year out between college and uni. And during that year, he took me on, he, he was, I think he was like the head. I think it was like lead basketball development office in Lincolnshire or something at the time. And, he, he brought me over to Lincolnshire and he said, come in, we're going to do these road shows. So we just drove around Lincolnshire basically for weeks doing basketball with a, with a trailer full of kit, um, like just kipping in people's sofas and things like that. And it was, um, that was a really good time. And uh, yeah, again, I was just some young kid. I didn't know what I was doing, but he was, he was quite a cool guy. And he, um, he just showed a bit of, you know, trust and uh, uh, yeah, I don't know, like, you know, give me an opportunity. So, People like that, I think. Nobody, I don't think there's anybody like I wouldn't call, I wouldn't say I had like a mentor or a, a teacher who really pushed me into it. It was just a lot of good people around who give me some opportunities, really. I love the uh, the world tour of Lincolnshire uh, <laughs> with basketballs in the back and a bit of netting. And uh, yeah, wow, exciting times. The best thing was Weave, Weave was um, Rob and this other guy, Danny Badham's, were, were pretty like they were from like the hood, you know, like Danny was from Manchester and Rob was from some like tough parts of Liverpool. And like, <laughs> like you're in Grantham today or Spalding, you know, and it was like Skegness and they just didn't have a clue. It was like, they were constantly like, what on earth is this place? Where are we? What's going on? You, know? you were the only people in Grantham wearing vests and headbands. Yeah. Is what I've heard. And then I'm thinking about that. So obviously we're going to talk about you doing a real interesting kind of, let's call it a study around flow like do you remember moments back then where you as a, either a player or a coach were were in flow yeah I wouldn't say as a coach maybe now I think look back maybe maybe I had some moments but as a player certainly and 
I remember like my first, the first connection I made to it was uh, I used to watch when I was a kid, well, a kid, adolescent. I was used to before I went before I went to basketball practice or games. I was used to watch this video, it was a VHS called NBA Jam Session, which was um, I don't know if you remember it, you might have seen it or not. It was quite it's quite a thing, you know. Everybody knew NBA Jam Session, and it had basically it was like loads of it's like music videos, but with basketball clips laid over the top, and they were themed. And there was one which was um, Magic and Bird. So this was like, you know, it was a little bit before Jordan took over, but it's still like Magic and Bird era in the NBA. And there was a little clip of Larry Bird talking about, um, there's loads of clips of him, him passing the ball. I don't know if you've seen much of Larry Bird, but the guy was just like unbelievable. He's making passes over his shoulder, behind his head, through his legs, behind his back. Like, and you're thinking, how is he even, how is he even seeing that guy? What? You know, just unbelievable. And so somebody's asking him in an interview, how does he do this? And he talks about the game as if it's like a, a film in his head and it's going, and the film in his head is like going ahead of the actual game. So it's almost like got this this sense that he can predict what's going to happen. And when he does his thing, it just turns out the way he thought it was going to turn out. Um, and I was like, I remember when I got to university, I asked my psychology teacher about this. I said, look, I'm really fascinated about what this this phenomenon is describing because it sounds like it's superhuman, you know? Uh, and he's like, Oh no, that's flow. He's probably describing like being in the zone or a flow state. And that was the first time I came across it. And it, and it, um, yeah, it was just something that I'd always was fascinated in, you know, right from watching jam session as a kid, you know, before I went to practice, getting, get myself in the mood. Nice. And what about, uh, and, and I've heard it, a couple of people talk about like players that play the game in the future, which sounds really similar to what you're talking about, i.e. They, they would have some real good kind of anticipation skills. They would know the strengths of the other players and what they were likely to do. They could predict where they needed to be and and, and it all kind of works out quite nicely. Yeah. But what about as a coach? I'm curious, like similar stuff as a coach. Um, I think you, you probably, um, you probably know as well as I do, Rusty, that, you know, coaching like any activity is a flows a state that you can experience in any complex activity that involves, you know, challenges, you know, difficult, complex challenges. And so coaching is obviously full of that. And I think, I dare say, certainly games, like one of the things that I was, or my, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, as a coach, I'm happy when you practice, I'm happy planning sessions, I'm happy planning macro, meso cycles and the rest of it. But I think the bit where, the thing that, that kept me coming back for 20 years straight was game coaching. I love game coaching because maybe, I don't know how this is similar or different to rugby, but you know, in basketball, I can have 14, potentially 14 chances to affect a game during the game, you know, so never mind the pregame, but obviously because we've got quarters and timeouts, um, you know, that's up to 14 opportunities for me to affect the game actually directly, changing things tactically and, you know, looking what the other coach is doing and responding to that or try to provoke a change in the opposition and stuff like that. So I think during games, yeah, that's probably when I would most likely experience it, that when you try to, you know, things are moving quickly and you try to read what the opposition are doing and you try to make your substitutions and figure out who's going to, who should I put on to guard that guy and should we switch to a zone here? And if we switch to a zone, what would they do? And, you know, it's that, it's that um, immersion, immersion, in that activity, but but the sense of control that you get, like, it's nothing better than outwitting an opposing coach. You know what I mean? Putting a scheme on, and that you can tell they've just like you've completely outfoxed them, and you know, um, or like masterminding a comeback. You know what I mean? Switching tactics at half time, and like you're twenty down, and then you come back and win by ten. You know stuff like that. No better feeling, really. So, how how do you get to that state? So, from a coaching point of view, what's the stuff that you think helped you get to that? Um, I think it's the first time I've been asked for that. I think there's a lot, obviously, you know, a lot of it comes from experience and seeing lots of game situations and having tried lots of things in the past, but also, also being a real, um, student of the game, you know, like constantly, you know, I used to watch a lot of collegiate basketball, NBA basketball, and try and watch and pay attention to lots and lots of basketball and seeing what other coaches are doing and noticing that, you know, like um, I don't know if you know, there's, there's a guy called Nick Nurse who's currently the 
he he's the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, uh, and he was the NBA coach of the year last year. So, and he he started coaching in England. He was, in fact, I've coached against him um, about 18, 19, uh, 19 years ago. Um, and one of the things Nick Nurse in the NBA Finals a couple of years ago um, played a box and one against uh, the Warriors against Steph Curry. And nobody in the NBA has played, no coach in the NBA has played a box and one like for about 50 years. It's like, it's a particular kind of defense where you basically have four players playing the zone and then one player playing man to man on whoever the, the best opposition player is. And it's like, it's a classic defensive system that you use in England because most teams have only got one good player. <laughs> so box and one's dead, dead common. Whereas in the NBA, obviously, you can't really play a box and one because everybody's good. So, um, it was fascinating to see Nick Nurse using that. And he, when he when he was questioned about it afterwards, because all the commentators were like, what's he doing? How's he doing this? And it was just, yeah, well, I remember doing this back when I was coaching Brighton, you know what I mean, in, um, in the BBL. And so he'd seen, you know, it's just raising your um, awareness and consciousness of like, there's loads of things we could do here. Having lots of options uh, gives you, a, I guess, a better opportunity to, to pick the right option for the right moment. Um, which, like I said, in basketball, you get quite a lot of chances to do that, you know, during a game. Um, unlike like football coaching, I guess, where you might have half time really to maybe some subs late in the game to do something. Yeah, I uh, wouldn't it have been great if Nick Nurse had name dropped you at that point? I did a you know, playing coaching for Brighton against uh, dangerous Dave Piggott. Um, <laughs> you you just got me thinking then. I mean, having just done a pod this morning with Paul McGuinness. Actually, the amazing way he goes from, we're talking about this, and you said we'd go on some tangents to, oh, and there's an example of that here, and there's an example of that here. And I wonder how many coaches and players, quite frankly, step outside their own little world of my team, my competition, you know, to even, you know, the kind of random, the second the second tier basketball competition, what's going on over there? Because there may well be more innovation there. Um, yeah. Box plus one kind of makes sense to me. We would man mark their best player, and we we might have a bit of a framework for for everyone else. Yeah. Um, and I agree. With you. The other stuff I was thinking about, and we're going to go into your stuff in a second, was maybe the other thing. And so having that ability to to, to create options is critical. But then also like understanding like how you are. Like, does that make sense? Like, what's going to make you wobble and mean that I can't choose those options because my brain's all over the place. You know, how are you on your best day? What makes mm. you wobble? That type of stuff. Did you, did you delve into that stuff as a coach? Yeah, I think um, not, not very explicitly. I think obviously since I've been teaching coaching more of that kind of self-awareness, self-knowledge um, is something we talk about, but I suppose as a coach, if I'm really perfectly honest as a coach, um, yeah, I think I think I know what I'm like. I know my strengths. Um, I'm really calm. I'm, I'm I'm like the Brad Stevens guy. I'm like you know, I mean, I, I remember I remember a game I coached years ago when I was like must have been eighteen, nineteen. It was a national league game, and I think they were like under under sixteens, under eighteens. Anyways, basically like a, it was a really aggro kind of a game, and the opposition coach was was a knob, and he was constantly like on the referees and on his players and our players. Um, and after a while, the game kind of went, uh, boiled over and there was a scrap on the court and the other coach jumped into it and their bench went in and our bench went in and there were some parents in there and it was an absolute um, carnage. And I was really conscious that I was just stood with my arms folded watching this, like just a bit bemused. Um, and I was also conscious that we had a bunch of parents um, watching as well. And I wanted to, I was very conscious that I was setting a, visually I was setting a, a tone for how we were, how I wanted us to deal with this situation rather than overreacting like the others. And so I guess even from quite a young age, I was quite aware of what I was like and some of my strengths. And, um, but also I've, I've worked with other coaches, particularly in professional, in the professional game who um, were much more, I think one of the weaknesses there is you, you're not, or you don't sometimes come across as being emotionally engaged and invested in, in the game. Even if I you are, you, it appears that... I thought some parents are going to tell you off for not joining in and going, well, you don't care. <laughs> because that is also, you know, the flip side of that is if 
people don't know you or it, it, it just doesn't quite look right, does it? When there's the yeah. person who's, well, everyone else is shouting and screaming and what's Dave doing? Like, does he yeah. really care? Yeah. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, it takes time for people to figure that out about me that, you know, I do care. I am passionate. I just express it in slightly different ways. And, um, but then, you know, I've seen other coaches who, you know, just through their own energy can almost will a performance out of some players on the court. Whereas I probably couldn't do that because that's not, if I tried to, if I tried to put that on, it'd be obvious. It was like some sort of act. It's not authentically me, you know? Um, um, yeah. I think that's an important thing to, and to be authentic, you know, and if you're screaming or shouting, then that's probably okay. Um, but it's nice to have an assistant who isn't as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so what did you discover? So when you kind of interviewed some people mm. about flow states, what did you, what did you find out? So do you give you a tiny bit of context to, to the way they went about this? So uh, years ago when I did my, I did my PhD in sort of mid 2000s, and I got interested in uh, a lot of the, I talked to a lot of kids basically about football and what they enjoyed about football. And they all told me things that I ultimately connected to, to being in flow. So a lot of what they talked about was when they felt they were playing really well and they felt competent and they liked scoring goals and how they felt when they scored a goal. And um, a lot of the effective stuff was about the feelings that I associated with them and like what they were experiencing was probably something cl- close to flow. So um, I got interested in it then. And then when I, I went, um, one of my, the first actually student I ever supervised as a PhD, he chose to study flow, but in golf, he was a golfer. Um, and so we spent four, uh, three, four years with him studying flow in elite golfers. So I had these kind of ideas with kids, but also with elite um, senior golfers. Um, and the golf stuff was really interesting, but it was interesting. It was interesting, but I was like, well, I'm my sport's so different to golf. Like basketball and golf couldn't be like, more different <laughs> and I wanted to take some of those ideas we developed in golf and see if they kind of um, hung up in basketball as well um, so I spent a season basically working with a, a professional team um, where I was effectively the assistant coach but what I did was every time a player had um, every time a player played really really well um, and we thought it might have been they might have been in flow at certain points during the game I then went and interviewed them but we do it with video so I would I would clip the game and then the day or two afterwards I would would show would share the clips, stimulate their kind of recall of the experience and ask them really kind of what it was like. But then really we wanted to understand what had contributed to that. So why why did they feel they'd been able to get into that kind of optimal state? Well what does that um what does that mean? You know, what does it look like? Is there any patterns that we can pull out? Um and in particular, I was, I was really always asking them about, is there anything in particular they felt the coaching staff had done uh, to support that? You know, so either, even in, not just like immediately in the game, but also pre-game and also like in the weeks leading up to that even, you know, during practice and, and so on and so forth. So it was quite um, an in-depth exploration really of uh, the player's experience, but obviously with, always with the connection to what were we doing as a coaching staff as well? You know, is there anything we were doing? So, yeah, that, that's kind of what I did. Um, what did I learn? Well, there's a few things, right? I mean, coming back to that point about, you know, um, so when, and, and this is not just our research, but if you look at the, there's quite a lot of research, obviously, on flow. Um, there's a kind of weird idea that it's really hard to, um, it's, it's quite ephemeral, it's quite um, fleeting, you know, and it's mystical, you know, like these these experiences. But also a lot of athletes and coaches feel like they can control it, you know. So you talk to athletes and about two-thirds of them often say they felt they've got some level of control over their psychological state. Some don't, which I find bizarre, but there you go. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of, there's this idea that that it's, both mystical and ephemeral and difficult to achieve, but also controllable in some ways. Um, and so what I kind of focused on that. And I think the, I think the reason why that is, by the way, is because it's highly contextual. All right. So obviously the extent to which, you know, you think about your, your players, your players, you know, prior to a game, during a game, there's so many factors that can influence their psychological state 
Um, and the, the idea that you might be able to control all those things is, is ridiculous. Um, so, so the way of looking at it is, well, there's, there's some things that you can do that I think we've been able to pull out from the research that probably if you did them consistently, they're, they're, they're going to increase the likelihood that the players are going to experience flow or, you know, some of these sort of states approaching flow, like peak, you know, peak performance states, optimal states. Um, and again, if we look at it from like um, far away to immediate, so if you think there's, there's some stuff you can do in the game, in the moment, um, I think. But then if we track back from that, we start further away and start, start talking about the broader conditions of practice conditions and so on. First thing that all, all the players we spoke to talked about was, well, if I don't trust and respect the coach, I ain't listening to jack shit they're saying anyway. So um, there's a sort of precondition, which is establishing just good quality coaching relationships. Trust, respect has to be there because if it's not, they're not buying into your practice. They're not buying into what you're saying pre-game. They're not buying into what you're saying during the game. So that was a big thing um, from the outset. Which, by the way, is a really, really big thing. So I would hear loads of players talk about we do, we don't. Um, Owen Eastwood would talk about it. It's like a chemical reaction in your body. Mm. Um, So it could be we do and a week later we don't. Yeah. And Max Caldas spoke about, I I had him on the Zoom the other day and he said, uh, job of the coach is simple, it's to build trust. Mm. And actually I wonder how many coaches think that that's important and then, and look, I'm not trying to, I definitely want to get to the other stuff, but uh, this is massive. Like, mm. how many people are really intentionally building trust? How do they know how to build it? Do they know yeah. how quickly it is to break? And what stuff they do might break it? And yeah. I'm thinking about the weekend, you know, so you look at a Quinn's team where a coach leaves and the next game they, you know, that performance changes. It's massive. Like, mm. it's... Um, I mean, it's a big piece of work, that, isn't it? It's huge. I, said, I was quite flippant, wasn't I, when I said that? I wasn't, and only because I was, an, an, I was on a, another webinar the other day and they talked about, oh, we need coaches that, that can build trust in order to do this. So I think I asked, like, where does trust sit? Oh, yeah, yeah, in order to do this, you need trust, obviously. Mm. Okay, all right, but no one's mentioned it yet. And, um, and the other one was empathic accuracy. So we need someone who can do that. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not like, you don't just have that or don't have it. Like those skills are like, well, they're skills, both those things. Yeah. So yeah. Where, are we, where does that sit in our world is something I'm, I'm now wrestling with in my head. Yeah. And like I said, it's a precondition. So almost like if you don't have that, all the things I'm about to say now don't matter anyway, because... <laughs> We're not going to connect. Um, so maybe it is worth pausing on a second. So I suppose what I can tell you is in the, what I can share about the specific situation with this team and these players was that, like you said, it, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. You know, one week you've got it, one week you haven't. I think that was clear that, so there was there was one player who who had four flow experiences across the season. And every time I spoke to him, he had a slightly different take on the extent of like trust and respect he had for the for the coaching staff, particularly the head coach. It wasn't me. Um, and in the first one, he said, the first one, he talked a lot about that that he he was he was trying to earn the coach's trust because he was a new player, he'd come over from the states, been playing NCAA Division One, and and in the, and this that was the first few weeks really of relationship building, and he was out to try and impress the coach, and he didn't really know the coach then. And it was a very kind of transactional thing. And, and so some of the things that the coach had said to him about his responsibility and his role really inspired him, I guess, in that first game. And, um, and he talked quite a lot about that. By the second uh, like event, if you want to call it, um, he'd like a lot of that was like impression management. And it wasn't real. There wasn't any real relationship there. Um, it's pressure management on both parts. And I think he'd realised by that second event that he thought the coach was, was full of shit, basically. He thought he'd kind of seen through the facade, the impression management. He was like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So actually then he talks about closing himself off from the coach. And he actually talked about the coach uh, 
in, in that case, in the second instance, the coach kind of, so it was like, well, he's gone now. It's lost. I've lost it, that uh, connection. Um, and then later in the season, there's another case where I think in the week prior to practice, the coach had changed the offensive system. And he, that player liked the system and he trusted that system. And he was like, he talked about, again, I've regained some trust and respect because he'd made a change and that change kind of worked for me. And okay. So he got a little bit back. And then by the last game, it was like he'd gone again. So it was like really up and down over the course of a season. Um, but I think in that case, the head coach was doing a lot of a lot of impression management. And uh, I, I knew him for a long time and I knew people who worked with him and that was kind of, his his approach. He was ultimately not not massively confident in his own um, abilities as a coach, and because he'd always get um, he wasn't a player himself, and he got a lot, he used to get a lot of players from the US. He felt like he had to kind of put on this kind of act, this impression of a competent coach, which usually kind of stood up for a few weeks. But by Christmas, it was like pretty much everybody had seen through it, you know, and um, could see and he was he was he was struggling. So. Um, I think that's one thing that, again, there's a lot of research on that impression management and stuff like, it's really about authenticity, you know, so players will see through that eventually um, and, and finding a way to be authentic. And, and I suppose to, to turn that around a little bit, <clears throat> I was similar. So I have the same uh, person. I had the same insecurities and doubts about myself because I'm getting guys like, I'm, there's guys coming over playing for that squad who are, there was one guy who played in the NCAA tournament in, in the summer before, played against Kentucky against like Anthony Davis. And now he's coming like, and I'm coaching him, right? I'm thinking <laughs> this this guy's thinking, who the hell's this character? You know, he's like, heard that you've coached against Nick Nurse. So he's like, Oh, this <laughs> this legend we gave tickets over in England. Yeah. Oh, that's him, yeah. The, the yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty sure he did Well, they, look, they don't know do they? they don't know anything. And he was, he was a sort of six foot six black guy from the Bronx who played for a really tough coach in Cincinnati for four years. And then he turns up and he's got, you know, some idiot um, white guy from Yorkshire who's a bit of an academic. And like, what, honestly, what is he going to make of me? So I've got the same fears and insecurities and everything as well. But so what I do is it's very deliberate. I basically coach like an American coach for about the first month of practice. So I deliberately changed the way that I coach and it's it's much more kind of in the like in the Bobby Knight style, you know, throwing chairs and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Drill-based, military. Because that's what they're used to. That's that's where they think coaching is. Hey, will you tell everyone what you're up to at Core 37? Hi, Fletch. We're a teamwear brand based in the Northeast, and we're the sister company of Oddballs. We've got the largest sports sublimation factory in the UK and we've produced for the biggest brands in Europe over the past seven years. But with Core 37, our in-house brand, you can now access those prices direct to the customer. Why would people use Core 37? Uh, if I was to pick three, Fletch, it would be our lead time of three to four weeks, our price, which is lower than anybody else in the industry, and the fact that we're made here in the UK. What's the stuff you're most proud of with Core 37? Oh, there's loads of stuff, but the, the key one for me would be working for a company that, that genuinely believes in its own mission statement which is to produce performance sportswear at an affordable price. And then underpinning that is the people, everybody who works here is involved in grassroots sport in some way. And so we generally care about what we're doing here. Fletch, why do you want to partner with Core 37? Uh, apart from the fact you're a Geordie, uh, great people, uh, lots of people involved in sport, really affordable and top quality. Thanks for joining us, Wilkie. Anyone who wants to find out more can go and have a play on their website at core-37.com or they can reach out directly to tom at core-37.com. Yeah, throwing chairs but fixing them. That's what I would imagine. You like throwing them, but then I don't want to know. I'll fix it later. <laughs> so, so I deliberately do that, but I do it because I, I know that if I, just, if I just coached as me as of day one, they'd just reject it outright because it's like, what the hell is this, you know? Um, and so I have to, I'm very deliberate in terms of progressively shifting then my behavior and explaining why I'm doing what I'm doing, but it's a deliberate shift. And then, and what you're doing over time is I think earning their trust through being more authentic and explaining why you're doing what you're doing. And it, it's, it's a process, it took, takes months, you know, for, for particularly guys coming from a very different cultural background and way of working, uh, 
you can't just you can't just um, you know it's the boiled frog thing, isn't it? You can't just chuck the, the frog in the boiled water; it just jumps out again. Yeah. Um, so so you, you got to meet them where they are. You got to meet them with the the chair the chair act, and then slowly um, <clears throat> bring them on a little journey with you. Do they ever reference back yeah. to the chair? Do they um, ever look back and go, "Oh, Dave, that chair, that that chair thing was pretty cool." <laughs> never actually threw a chair. Um, no, uh, some of them do. Some of them do. Um, like, so I, would, I would always be keen to have conversations about the way that I'm coaching with them. You know, rather than there's this like barrier between like I can't talk to them about how I'm coaching. You know, yeah, um, top secret. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd, I'd, I'd engage them in discussions about it, which again was probably a bit weird for them. But um, but yeah, over time, the better ones would then notice and go, oh yeah, yeah, I can see what you're doing now and I can see why you did that then. And, you know, uh, yeah, like you say, it's not it's not top secret. And I think that's part of it. Part of my approach would be to invite them into that and have conversations another time about why I'm doing what I'm doing, which again, just doesn't fit with that impression management approach, which is, um, I hope they don't find out, you know, <laughs> hope they don't find me out yeah I mean that's uh, I, th- I find that remarkable and I guess that as you become more competent and confident as a coach you're more likely to have those conversations and I definitely would have been very fearful of those conversations and I love what Danny Newcomb says he says first three years of my coaching career just wanted to get through the session no questions nothing deviates from the path and we were all there and and actually as coaches become more skilled, I'm surprised more don't integrate the players in that because ultimately, you know, you, they're, your, they're the ones that are going to help the others get better as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, so, so, yeah, that's, that's the sort of... So we've, we've established trust is important. We've, we've yeah. taken it from this little atom that it was and it's become a molecule. And now we're, <laughs> we're, we've, we're, we're, we've got to have some ways as coaches to kind of understand how we are building and potentially destroying trust yes yeah uh, and so that was like a, I don't know it's like a something that surrounds everything um, that I'm going to talk about now so <clears throat> assuming that that exists and like we said it may exist some weeks and, and not the next um, but assuming that exists I think the next thing a lot of the players talked about was the importance of intensity in practice uh, and I'll probably make connections here with like, I don't know if you're familiar with Anderson and the competitive cauldron and stuff like that, but creating a practice environment where players experience the psychological intensity, emotional intensity of uh, of the game. Um, because if they don't, it, they find it very difficult to rate, you know, flows like a peak psychological state. If I don't, if I'm not getting myself up into that kind of psychological, effective, emotional state, during the week, it's very hard to raise raise myself up to that level psychologically for for a Saturday night or a, you know whatever, and that's something we try to do quite a bit. And, and it was also about creating um, you know we play off individuals to get against each other for that as well. You know, so we knew if we knew two players really liked going at each other in practice, we we'd manufacture that quite a bit. You know, and and bait them a little bit. I would even say, you know. Like I'd have a word in the ear about, you know, Eddie, you know, Dizzy's uh, putting over you there, didn't he? What are you can do about it, you know? Like, <laughs> you know we, my language now. Yeah. I'm very excited about that kind of, you know, using a bit of sarcasm and, and nudging some people and who's, you know, on the whiteboards, who's who's created the most assists because at the end it's going to, we're then going to have a shootout at the end to see who's the... I'll tell you a good story. So, and and, um, and I like this. This is a cool session. So, <clears throat> I did a webinar the other day for Cardiff Football Club, and they have a. Uh, it's called Champion Trainer, and they play a, an eight-a-side game. And if your team wins, this team goes off. This team stays on, and it's a four-a-side mm-hmm. game. If your team wins. Team goes off. It's two v two, one v one, and you have a winner. Because I, I said to them, "Oh." Yeah. We're talking about this. I said, when do you see the players most alive in the week? So, And they said, uh, when we do champion trainer. Because to start with, it certainly looks like the game, but it also feels like the game. Like There's a lot of 
you know, we're down to the last 1v1 yeah. type stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we used to do that where we'd have, um, I'd set mini courts like horizontally down the gym and I'd caught, you know, we had the championship court and then there's the loser's court at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, the shallow so end. Winner up, loser down. And it was always about then who's who's at the top court, who can get up there and who's up there this week, who wasn't there last week. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff like that, um, which the players talked about has been quite important to establish like physical, psych- or physiological and psychological readiness for being in, being at that level. Um, so that's some kind of like leading up to the game. And then the other stuff was like much more clear about, but it's more clearly aligned with the, the kind of flow theory, which is about clear goals and challenge skills balance. So those are the things that the research would tell us are conditions of flow. You know, so people have to feel like they need, they need their attention to be on the right things. They need to be focused. And also they need to be, have a sense that there's a really tough challenge, but that they're skillful enough, their current level of play and skill is is about, you know, just enough to meet that. You know, it's going to be really tough, but I'm, I'm about there. And again, some examples of that might be things like, so the kid I told you about, the kid from the Bronx who'd been in the, we've been playing Anthony Davis in the, like the previous summer. <laughs> and if people don't know, by the way, Anthony Davis is like one of the best five players in the world at the minute. Um, so he comes over and he's playing in, in England and he's looking around. You can just see by everything, his body language, the way he's carrying himself. He's like, I don't know if he ever got above like 70%, to be honest. Um, he was just, everything was like far too easy, far too like, you know, too, I'm too good for all this. So with him, what you had to do was you had to give him very, very specific challenges. So if you just let him, if you just prepared for a game normally and said, right, you're guarding I don't know, Drew Lasker today, he'd be like, all right, I don't know who that is. Um, so you'd, you'd have to like set it up for him, you know, he'd be like, look, this guy's really, really tough. He's, he was the leading scorer in the league last year. He's going to shred us if we're not careful. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a killer from three-point range. And he's got a wicked first step if you're not careful. And you're guarding him. You need to shut him down. And that would get him, that would be like, right, okay, I've got a I've got something now to get my teeth into. So with him, when he had those kind of flow state games, it was always that we'd 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 had to almost manufacture the challenge point for him to an extent, pre-game. Um and, and so it was like the clarity of your role. And the clarity of the goals associated with that, I think, is really important. And coaches obviously can massively affect that. Um, to what extent would you have him involved in that goal setting? Would you? Would he be part of that? Would you go give it, you know, and then maybe you nudge it on an extra 10% or sometimes it would be you, it would vary, it would depend. Is that something that would be going on as well? Yeah, I mean... Normally, yes. I think with him, he was a bit of a, he was a bit of an, um, a different character, to be honest. And he had he was complex. He had complex. Uh, he was a complex case in, psychologically, um, where actually I think we needed to do a lot of that for him. Um, partly to do with his previous coach and where he was at college and stuff like that. Um, he had really no experience of that, and he had some pretty bad experiences actually. So um, <clears throat> he he needed. He wasn't quite ready that year, I think, for us to start having those kind of conversations with him and bringing him in. But I wouldn't would do normally. But for him, it won't. It probably wasn't right. We needed to kind of stimulate that a little bit on his part. Um, but he reacted really well. You know, when you did it, he he picked up his game seriously. It was it was it was amazing actually how he could he could drift through a game, still playing quite well, and you could get on him about something in particular, challenge him, and he would go up another like twenty percent. It'd be like. It's amazing, best player in the league. All of a sudden, um, so uh, yeah, he was one you kind of had to uh, work quite hard with, I guess, um, on that. Some of the others were as difficult. You know, you could you could do it more easily with them. But again, it's it's about clarity of role, clarity of goal in relation to a game, because that's a callback. Then, obviously, as a coach, if you if you immediately pre-game or any timeout, those are the things that you just nudge and remind around. Or that you feed back against. So if I've given that, if I've given him that defensive assignment, I need to make sure that as a coach, the very first time in the game, he stays in front of him or he gets a steal or whatever. I need to reinforce that because he now knows that he's fulfilling his his role that I've given him. And I've yeah, got and to give it's him- important. So it's not something you mentioned and then you never mentioned again. And 
yeah. which which coaches can often do, me included. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. about uh, Japan at the World Cup, and and Jonesy, who previously did the pod, he spoke about they had some big picture metrics to tie up with some of their session planning around like ball in play and uh, high speed accelerations. But then the other stuff was individualized; it was themed. So you would become a ninja warrior if you if you hit your targets. You had real clarity on what your function was in the team and based upon the opposition this you know and how we see this game going this here's some like stretch goals for you and you know mm-hmm. they get five or six each game and became yeah. a big part of of what they did really yeah yeah so i think there's, there's two levels there's a clarity of the goal at a team level and the general stuff do we know what we're trying to achieve as a team but then there's individuals feeling like they've got a particular assignment or a particular uh, task and they're not just drifting through one game to the next to the next um, and, and the other thing the only other thing I would mention probably it's more of an individualising thing but uh, it might be different in different sports but in basketball mo- most teams have a very generic kind of way of warming up and you know the whole pre-game routine might be quite fixed you know like we do layup lines then we go off and then we we go to the locker room, we have a talk, we come back, we get stripped off, we you know, do the announcements. You know, it's very, very kind of that whole hour, if you like, it's quite fixed. And what I noticed was that when I talked to a lot of the players, they valued the value time alone or value time that they can um, prepare themselves psychologically. And a lot of them are very different. And so some of them would just want to shoot like for an hour just to feel like they've got confidence in their shot. And that would be really important for them going into the game. <clears throat> so, creating some time and creating some flexibility and some of that pre-performance stuff, I think uh, came out as being quite important because yeah, like I said, players will, will prepare slightly differently, um, um, which has to be respected, I think. Um, and too often we, we just ride roughshod over that and say, no, everybody's doing the same thing, same warm up, same routine, you know, and that's not optimal for, for all players. They've got the little superstitions and the things that make them feel comfortable. So it's, it's, this is really about confidence and, what do you need to do as an individual that makes you feel confident going into this game? And it's going to be different for different people. So um, that's something we had to think about and respect a little bit. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> probably, it's a great tradition in most sports. This is what the warm-up looks like. And mm-hmm. often in team sports, we, we possibly miss the opportunity for some individuals. So if I give you the most extreme version of this, uh, John Dudley, Neil Spence and Mike Margie used to smoke a cigarette for a game at Rotherham. Uh, and that's what, you know, they generally play pretty well. Um, <laughs> you know, it seemed to work for them. Now, of course, there's also the, well, is that distracting from the other players? But I think mm. asking those questions, uh, designing a warm-up that incorporates what the players need or, or want before a game is mm. something that we don't do often enough as coaches. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's quite difficult because it's not just about saying to everybody, do whatever you want. Um, you've got to still have a team thing going on, but you've got to allow flexibility within that and not like bollock somebody because they've, they've walked out of the warm-up to listen to some music for five minutes. Like That's okay, as long as I know that that's why you're doing it and that kind of thing, you know? Um, so I think that that period pre-game is going to be quite carefully managed and understood. Um, that's, again, what we learned a little bit from, from doing this work. Um, and then, I guess, the more immediate kind of in you know, in-game um, stuff was like, um, well, I've already mentioned it a little bit, like if you've given players particular goals, assignments within the game, you need to feedback on them quite quickly and explicitly. Um, and a lot of the times, and this is not just in our research, but it's in the other research as well on flow, is that it begins with, or the, the kind of build-up process begins with a positive, a, a very early positive performance so it might just be as a player, I've got foul, I've got the line, I see the ball go through the net, you know, because I've got, a, I'm shooting free throws, you know. So just seeing the ball go through the net rather than missing early on in the game. And all the players I spoke to when we talked about the game itself went back to a made shot. I made my first shot and that made me feel good. And I tr- and trusted my technique and and then, and then, and then, you know. So it was often, if you can, and again, from a coaching perspective in basketball, you can almost orchestrate that. You can run a play for a player. You can get them a shot in a position that they feel good. You can create the conditions for that if you're, if you're smart, you know. Um, again, I don't know how, I don't know how 
possible that is in other sports where it's less kind of set play orientated, but um, certainly the case that you could probably manufacture that or create conditions for it in basketball. Yeah, um, and then um, I mean, in 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 rugby, there will be certain players that you might go, look, we want to bring your strengths into the game as quickly as possible. We've got to line out actually our 12. We want to get them into the game as soon as possible. It made me think about, and I know it's, uh, it's, it's, it's your, it's kind of, in, it's your context, but were there any flow states that came from a poor start? So actually 10 minutes into the game, stuff wasn't going so well. And then there was a moment when did you, did you encounter any stuff like that? Not, not in this particular case, not in these, um, series of experiences they, they were all like it was a common feature to all of them they were all kind of good starts um but i've heard you know, obviously i've heard stories like that um and sometimes um i mean I, we probably haven't got time to talk about today but um my phd student christian he's he's gone on to do a bit more work on this since but he distinguishes flow from clutch states so um flow is, is more a kind of what we call like the letting it happen approach. So um, where it's often pro- provoked by an early positive experience, which then kind of snowballs into, and you get feedback and then that snowballs into another positive experience and, and it turns into, you know, builds and turns into flow. Whereas clutch is much more like effortful and deliberate where it, where you've got like a much more kind of fixed, uh, a fixed goal. Like it might be like in my sport again, you know, it's a difference between how we start a game and then how we finish a game. So it might be that we're five points down with two minutes left. So, so now we've got a, a very clear situation. How do we win the game from this position? Um, and that's, he, he would define that more as a clutch situation where actually it's not, you try to do different things as a coach. You try to focus them in on a very specific goal. You try to increase their awareness of their, their psychological state rather than play that down, which is what you'd be doing. You know, in, in, typically in flow, people um, become basically they lose their awareness of their self and their actions, and that's what you want. You want them to continue that sort of sense of um, total control, total immersion, uh, and 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 really like automatic automatic processing in a way. Whereas in clutch states, it's much more effortful and deliberate and focused on a particular goal. We've got this much time to get that many points back. Um, and so clutch states are often reported as similar, but there's some important differences as well. Um, and, the, and the, importantly, there's important differences in how you might manage those two situations as a coach. You know, so the, the pre-game, the building up to somebody getting into a flow state versus the probably late game, very clear performance situation that, that actually re- requires them to be in a clutch state, which is a little bit different. Um, yeah. Nice. You, uh, a couple of things. <clears throat> Did they reference, like, I was curious as to whether, like, some of their interactions in the week as well with coaches were something that they came up and said, actually, or or with their peers. So, you know, in the week, some stuff happened, um, or, or even in the game, this happened. Did you get yeah. kind of recall of those type of situations? Yeah, so a lot of them would, um, it wasn't just coaches, obviously, players on court are paying attention to various things and something about flow is, you know, one of the underpinning facts around flow is, is about managing attention and what you're tending to. Typically it's about tending to being in the moment, not what's just happened or what's going to happen. So that's something that we, again, it's something to be mindful of as a coach, how you, how you conduct like a timeout. For example, if I spend my time out beating them up about some mistake they've just made in the last two, three minutes of the game, then I'm not helping them get in flow because they're now thinking about something that's happened rather than thinking about how they're feeling in the moment and what they're just about to do. Um, so one of the things that they attend to quite a bit, they talked about was their teammates on the bench. So they they look at their teammates as an as a important cue and it's an important source of feedback for them. Um, and And again, it's something that we didn't really do that season, but I think I would do in the future if I was going to try to you know, do more work with this is I would be, I would help the guys on the bench understand and appreciate their importance of the importance of their behavior. So even just as, you know, if you, if you make a play and you turn and look at the bench, if people kind of stood around picking their nose or not really, you know, like 
doesn't make you feel particularly good as a teammate, you know, whereas if they're leaping up and down and hollering and, you know, giving it the whatever, you know, these, you know, the kind of things NBA guys do, that, that all really helps, really does help. Um, they're very, very uh, attentive towards it. So, you know, the behavioural displays from the bench are quite important as well. You know, what, what you're doing as a, as a guy sitting on the bench is, um, you know, you can have an important effect on the guy on, guy on the court. And as a process, I'm curious. So, I mean, is there a downside to asking the players these type of questions as a coach? Mm. And I was going to finish with and, and have you adapted your coaching as a result. So it would seem like really, and, 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 and you know, I'd definitely be interested in what type of questions you would ask, but, you know, to understand, you know, what could we possibly be doing to help you? What's the, you know, when you're having these performances, what's the stuff that was helpful? Mm. Uh, what helped you get to this stage? Uh, is there a downside to that? Yeah, there is, of course, because obviously the more, um, it's like I was talking about, you know, flows kind of almost like when they switch onto automatic processing. So the more you draw their attention explicitly to what, to them managing their own psychological state or to what's going on, you're always in danger of interrupting it, you know, and that was the other thing, like staying out of the way, uh, as, as I called it, uh, and actually came from the golf research that we did where um, a lot of the, so we, we interviewed a bunch of golfers who played like, you know, European Tour, Ryder Cup, you know, they're good, good players. And they always said about their best caddies were the ones who knew when they were in that kind of state, you know, when they were really striping it and just shut up, just stay out of the way. I don't, I don't want your particular opinion about whether there should be a seven iron or an eight iron, just fuck off, <laughs> you know? So staying out of the, like the caddy staying out of the way was the important kind of precursor to my thinking. And then, yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot you can do as a coach to interfere and interrupt uh, flow experiences. Um, and I think being mindful of when somebody might be feeling that way and just, just doing nothing is quite, quite an important thing. Um, don't say anything, don't do anything, don't change anything, don't, you know what I mean? Like, um, it's quite a, lot, quite a few of the players talked about, I, I would always ask them what ultimately spun you out of it. Um, and it was often something the coach had done or said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, um, it's important kind of, well, it's a paradox, isn't it, a little bit? Um, so I was always really careful because when I, when I interviewed the players about this, talk about it for about an hour or whatever. And then they'd start asking me, oh, so what do you think I could do? And they'd, they'd start to get curious about it and the theoretical stuff and things. And I told them at that point, look, we should stop talking now because <laughs> this is getting dangerous. Um, I don't want you to be thinking about this stuff. Like, cause the danger is now you, you learn more about it and then you start thinking about it and, and you become more deliberate and explicit and you're thinking, and that's not what we want. We want you to be just, just playing and play automatically. So, I was quite careful around that. And um, I think quite a lot of this stuff is, it's stuff for me, like for me as a coach, I, you know, so we, if your question is, what did I take from it? It's a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of little nuanced stuff, like how I run a timeout. Like I probably wasn't aware before of how much in a timeout I might spend. So I've got two minutes, right? And how much time of that two minutes do I spend talking about what's just happened? Um, and I don't really spend any time talking about what we're just about to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just little things like that that change the way that might that I might run a timeout. Um, you know, you might begin right timeout coming, guys. Right, forget that. That's happened. That's gone. Now, you know. So I've, I've spent two seconds saying that's gone, and now we've got one minute fifty eight seconds to talk about, you know, how we feel now and what we're just about to do. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that, and the, and like I said, some of the nuance around the pre-game and the assignment setting. So there's loads of little things, but those are things for me. Like the players don't need to know that I'm doing that and why I'm doing that. Really, I just need to be conscious of those things, and those help my, they help me set up practice, they help me manage the pre-game, they help me manage the in-game, um, a little bit better. And all I'm doing is like making lots of little tweaks, probably around around the edges of things that, not guaranteeing flow states, but they're probably improving the conditions that might where it might take root and grow if, if we're lucky for all the other things kind of um, drop into place um, um, and last question um, and um, and how has it changed like the stuff that you notice so clearly all this stuff you're talking about these little nuances and decisions are based upon you seeing some stuff 
Mm. Are you now attentive to different things after doing this piece of research? Yeah, definitely. I think all those things I mentioned were, it's not that I wasn't aware of them, but I don't think I, was, I wasn't really um, conscious of how they might be influencing the player's you know, potential psychological state um, as clearly as I am now, you know, so it's the reason why we do it, isn't it? I do, I typically do research to help me get better as a coach. I don't do research to publish papers, um, which is clearly, it's obvious by the fact that I haven't published this <laughs> research. <laughs> Although I could do, you know, it's just, um, it's not the main reason why I do it. So uh, yeah, I, I think there's loads of things that I, I probably notice now or more um, attentive to than, than previously. Um, and also just talking to the players and like, it's fascinating like we I don't know like as coaches I don't know often we really talk to our players about how to feel and think around games and stuff and so, so a lot of that individualised stuff um, I learned from talking to the players from interviewing them and I, you, you learn quite a lot about them and what makes them tick and what words might be meaningful and powerful to them that you could use you know I remember one guy the point guard he would always talk about relentlessness how he it was a way that he felt when he was in that state. He felt relentless. He felt he could just go and go and go and he could just hit shots and shots. And I'd never heard that word before using that context. And I thought it was a bit weird, but I was like, well, he clearly likes the word relentless. So I picked up on it. It was a bit of a hook for, you know, future, future interactions. Um, so yeah, just, you know, another broader lesson of being, you know, spending more time talking to players, finding out about, how they work and what makes them go. And um, yeah, that all, that's all helpful as well, I think. Yeah, and listening to their language. And as you said, using their language because it's more meaningful to them than your language. Yeah. It kind of makes sense to them. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I, I think lots of coaches would say, oh, but I don't have time to do that. And my view would be, you don't have time not to do that. Like, think our job is to work out how we can get the best out of people individually and as a team um and yeah even if you I mean even if you were thinking about it I mean I just I did a podcast with James Bailey this weekend and I learned loads about him by you know I know him really well but I learned way more by doing a podcast it kind of gave us both permission it gave me permission to ask some questions I wouldn't have normally asked and gave him permission to answer so that might even be the solution for you as a as a coach is to find, you know, uh, some innovative ways of doing some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, it gave me, like you say, it gave me um, permission to, you know, because normally if you just, if you're just booming around the practice court, a bit of pre-game, bit of post-game, bit of pre-practice, you don't actually have any meaningful conversations do with people really. If that's only, that's the only time you ever talk to them. So, yeah, I mean, there, there was a really good one, actually, the good instance of that where um, the kid, I mentioned the kid from the Bronx, I was talking to about him about his previous coach at college and he told me that, because um, I was really curious, I knew his college coach, well, I knew of him, he's quite a famous guy uh, and he's got this reputation for being like a defensive animal. Like he's, So I was like, so you know, tell me about, a bit about his practices. And he said, well, so we never worked on anything apart from defence. I said, what, you never you never like ran any offensive practice? No, it's just defence all the time. He's basically only ever worked on half the game. And then he told me this story, he said, what he does is he gets, um, they've got a bone, they've got a, a cow femur, like an actual bone that they bring to practice every 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 time. And it's got loads of people's like names scrawled on it and scratched into it. And this bone's been around for like years, apparently. Um, and, and so what happens is the coach um, brings the bone in and then not every time, but every, every now and again in practice, if somebody really puts in a proper sort of, like proper defensive performance, like where they've really dominated somebody and they've really like brought everything into practice. They get to sign their name on the bone. It's like, they, you know, to represent like the, the dog with a bone kind of, you know, sort of idea. And so um, he told me this story, but and it was like a massive thing for the players to get their name on the bone. You know, if you got your name on the bone one season, like, that was that was a pretty big thing. Um, it symbolized something really important about how you come to practice and played. And so with him again, I could just use that, yeah. Because you know, then every practice after that, I'm talking talking to him about you ain't got the bone today, have you? You know, where's yeah, the bone? You're not uh, going to win the bone today with that kind of behaviour. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have those conversations, you can't ever have those conversations. Mm. Reality, you need to 
get deep into some of that stuff. Mate, it's been a pleasure. I'm, yeah. I'm pleased we finally did it. Yeah. Um, if people want to reach out, where's the where's the best place? Uh, Twitter, probably. At uh, Wikicoach, that's my Twitter handle. Um, or yeah, just you know, look me up, uh, Google me, I'll, you'll find my email address at Leeds Beckett if you're... Uh, Stalk you. If you want to make an application, yeah. Yeah, nice. And I can recommend the Prof Doc, a great, uh, a great group of people, to be honest. Yeah. A good, uh, it's a good gang to learn off. Absolutely, mate, yeah. Mate, it's been awesome. Have a, have a good day and we'll catch up soon. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Rusty. Appreciate it.